Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with concerns expressed by the White House and the UK Prime Minister that Russia is preparing a false flag operation to use chemical weapons in Ukraine after making false charges echoed by Foreign Minister Lavrov that the US has a secret chemical and bioweapons factory in Ukraine. Joining us is Jeffrey Lewis, a professor of international studies at the Middlebury Institute, who is the founder of armscontrolwonk.com, the leading blog and podcast on disarmament, arms control and non-proliferation. And we will discuss whether Putin's nuclear alert is a bluff, as Ukraine's President Zelensky calls it, and whether, if the war drags on, the Russians might cross the nuclear threshold by firing a battlefield tactical nuclear weapon. Then, with today's House passage of a $14 billion aid package for Ukraine, expected to pass the Senate tonight, half of which $7 billion will go for arms, we'll examine what weapons could keep the Ukrainians in the fight long enough for Putin to decide to cut his losses and negotiate a peace instead of dictating a surrender. Joining us is James Golgaya, professor in the School of International Service at American University, a visiting scholar at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University, and a visiting fellow at the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. He has held a number of public policy appointments, including Director for Russian, Ukrainian and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council, and is the Whitney Shepardson Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. His books include America Between the Wars from 11.9 to 9.11, Power and Purpose, U.S. Policy Towards Russia After the Cold War, and Not Whether But When, the U.S. Decision to Enlarge NATO. And we will discuss how Putin is not so much afraid of NATO enlargement as he is of Ukraine joining the EU. Then finally, we'll look into how the current conflict in Ukraine is a window into our increasingly endangered planet, threatened by nuclear weapons, cyber attacks, refugees, pandemics, and a fast-warming planet, and speak with Karen Greenberg, Director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School, an International Studies Fellow at New America, and a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations. A noted expert on national security, terrorism, and civil liberties, She's the author of The Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First 100 Days, and Rogue Justice, The Making of a Security State. And her latest book is Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy, From the War on Terror to Donald Trump. We will discuss her article at Tom Dispatch. To truly understand Ukraine war, look to our future, not the past. And before we go to our first guest... Since we are now fully independent, your support for this program is vital to keep us online and on a growing number of radio stations across the country. And while we operate on a low budget, we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org to help ensure that background briefing is sustainable into the future so that we can continue to provide a daily news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests, both at home and abroad. And for those listeners who have issues with PayPal, we now have made it easier to donate simply by credit card. So if you are in a position to give support, or have been meaning to but have been unable, please go to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. 
And joining us now is Jeffrey Lewis, who is a professor of international studies at the Middlebury Institute and a regular columnist for foreign policy. He's published articles in Foreign Affairs, The Washington Post, New York Times, and he's the founder of ArmsControlWonk.com, a leading blog and podcast on disarmament, arms control, and nonproliferation. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jeffrey Lewis. It's nice to talk to you. Well, thanks for joining us. And the White House Press Secretary, Jen Psaki, uh, tweeted out yesterday, now that Russia has made these false claims and China has seemingly endorsed this propaganda, we should all be on the lookout for Russia to possibly use chemical or biological weapons in Ukraine or to create a false flag operation using them. It's a clear pattern. And these remarks were also echoed, echoed in the British Parliament by Prime Minister Boris Johnson. So are you concerned that Russia may use chemical weapons? I can't imagine them using biological weapons, but at least chemical weapons, is that a possibility? Well, the two things are quite different, um, but I do think that it is a possibility. Uh, the government in Syria has used chemical weapons to clear out uh, areas where there is hard fighting, particularly in urban areas. Uh, and it is disturbing when we see the kind of claims that the Russian government has been making. You know, I, I sometimes think that U.S. officials state things a little too strongly. Uh, but it is there is a pattern where uh, sometimes when we see the Russian government making claims about what the U.S. or NATO is doing, that hasn't other cases been a kind of precursor to the thing that they themselves intend to do. So I'm, I'm worried about it. Uh, I don't think it's certain that will happen, but uh, I do understand why it's now a topic of discussion. And the false claims that uh, the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki is referring to are claims made in the Russian press, and particularly by Foreign Minister Lavrov, that the U.S. is helping the Ukrainians and they've created a secret laboratory in Ukraine to develop chemical and biological weapons. So that that's the false claim that she's referring to. And what do you know about the Chinese echoing that? That seems pretty extraordinary. Well, I think one of the things we've seen in this conflict is that the Chinese have taken a side. Um, they have, in the past, typically been a lot more careful uh, and tried to stay out of things. And there's some of that still. But in general, uh, what we have seen from China is support for Russia's action. Uh, and so it's a very interesting development. I don't really think that the two necessarily coordinate uh, military actions, um, but China absolutely is giving, I think, a lot of diplomatic support and, and cover to Russia. And that may be because it's in their interest, but it, it also may be because they inhabit the same information ecosystem. Well, unfortunately, the history of Russia's secret programs, in particular its biological programs, is quite alarming. I spent a lot of time with Ken Alabeck, who was the deputy director of their secret biological program, who uh, defected to the U.S. And the scope of it, and of course the U.S. had, along with the rest of the world and Russia, or the Soviet Union at the time, had signed on to the uh, Biological Weapons Convention, I think in 1975, and Russia completely ignored it and created a massive arsenal of anthrax weapons and smallpox weapons, which they weaponized. They put them on their SS-18 missiles. When you, you look at the whole full scope of what they did, it's just 
frightening. It goes beyond any kind of weird James Bond villain scenario. The scope of the Soviet program was really quite large, um, to the point where it it almost seems like it was out of control and and was disconnected from any reasonable concept of how one might use such horrible weapons. You know, the instance that really sticks out for me is um, there was an outbreak of anthrax uh, near Sverdlovsk, and the Russian government denied um, that it was from a weapons program. They said it was from tainted meat. And when scholars were able to actually learn where people had gotten ill, it was very clear that the people who had gotten ill were all in a pattern that matched perfectly the direction of the wind uh, from the facility. So, you know, it's, a, it's an unfortunate thing to say, but the Soviet Union did have an extremely large biological weapons program. They were dishonest about the existence of that program. And while President Yeltsin claimed that Russia ended that program. I think that for many of us, there are still lingering concerns about how thoroughly that program was dismantled and whether it has come back to life in recent years. And ironically, of course, Yeltsin was the Communist Party head in Sverdlovsk at the time, and he was outraged by what had happened, but obviously didn't have a lot of ability to stop the program. So Jeffrey Lewis... What about the nuclear component? I mean, after all, it's Putin himself who introduced the threat of nuclear war here by going on full alert. Now, President Zelensky of, uh, of Ukraine is saying he's bluffing. But with nuclear weapons, I mean, even if you, if you point a nuclear weapon at somebody without pulling a trigger, it's still incredibly threatening, isn't it? And what else is a full alert but the pointing of nuclear weapons, and particularly at the United States? Well, I do think that Putin was playing a bit of a game. Uh, The fact that he did this on television uh, in a very public way by verbally uh, making this comment, really, I, I think it was intended for people to respond. Now, Russian officials have since said, well, it wasn't really an alert because Russian forces are on alert anyway, and all they were talking about was increasing the staffing at certain command posts. And they, you know, that I think that it's probably true that the alert was less than met the eye, but it is also true that the fact that Putin did it on television, what it was done for effect. Um, and I, and I think that that's a pretty crude form of, of nuclear signaling. And it's one of these things where I think Putin is playing around. I think he's, Um, you know, seeing uh, what he can stir up. But the reality is when you play with nuclear weapons, you are playing with fire. And so even if he doesn't intend for the situation to escalate or get out of control, the actions he's taking make that outcome more likely. Well, fortunately, um, President Biden didn't take the bait, right? I think that's right. Yes. Uh, The U.S. didn't change its nuclear readiness levels. The United States also didn't respond with a lot of hot rhetoric, and they even canceled or, or postponed a test of, a, of a, an ICBM in order to keep the temperature down. And I, I think that's the right response. Um, you know, this is a situation where one really can't afford to speak softly because our nuclear arsenal in the United States is an extraordinarily big stick. And so I think it's, uh, it's irresponsible of Putin to be talking about his weapons, Um, And I think it's the correct decision by President Biden to refrain from engaging in that kind of talk. 
And again, I'm speaking with Jeffrey Lewis, who is a professor of international studies at the Middlebury Institute and a regular columnist for foreign policy who's published articles in Foreign Affairs, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and he's the founder of armscontrolwonk.com, a leading blog and podcast on disarmament, arms control, and non-proliferation. So, obviously, there's a concern as this war escalates and the terrible attacks on civilians escalate. We saw the bombing of a maternity hospital in Mariupol. Apparently there are bodies in the streets all over Mariupol. And Putin is doubling down the talks uh, between the Foreign Minister Lavrov and Ukraine's Foreign Minister in Turkey ended without any results, any satisfaction. But from what I understand, and from what Peskov, Putin's spokesman, has said, the Russian position is the total disarmament of Ukraine becoming a neutral state and acknowledging Russia's control of Crimea and the Donbass. And then if the Ukrainians agree to that, they will stop killing Ukrainians and destroying their country. And of course, the Ukrainians said to that deal, something I can't even say on the radio. So this is somewhat out of control, is it not, the situation? A lot of concern about Putin having bitten off more than he can chew. His economy is in free fall. He's got to, at some point or other, come out of his own delusions. And in spite of the propaganda bubble that the Russian people are living in, they must start feeling the pain. So are you concerned in any way, as somebody that studies nuclear and chemical and biological proliferation, that this, this situation could escalate into the use of a weapon of mass destruction? I am worried about it. It's not my primary concern right now, because even if the situation does not escalate to weapons of mass destruction, we're already seeing enormous human suffering in Ukraine. And I don't uh, I don't want to lose sight of that fact. But the reality is, is that the longer this war drags on and the more frustrated that Vladimir Putin is that he cannot achieve his objectives, there is a risk he will try to escalate his way out of this situation. And I think there is also a risk that the United States and its allies will feel dragged in. So, you know, we're already hearing talk about uh, so-called no-fly zone, which uh, is a bit of a euphemism for something that would be direct military conflict uh, between NATO nations and Russia. So I'm, I'm, I'm very... I am hopeful that we will collectively be able to prevent the situation from escalating further. But the longer it drags on, the greater the possibility that Putin feels like his his only route to victory is through some escalation, and and the greater the possibility that that those of us in the West will will begin to feel like we have to do something. And if things drag on and you see people escalating their involvement, then yes, I think it naturally does raise uh, this risk. So I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not building a bomb shelter yet, but this is, this is a serious concern that I think we have to be wary of. And Jeffrey Lewis, what is your understanding then of Putin's understanding or acceptance of mutually assured destruction, MAD, which operated throughout the Cold War and still operates today. There's lots of talk of how the Russians have integrated tactical nuclear weapons into their military and 
that they don't see the threshold being so stark. After all, we haven't used, nobody has used a nuclear weapon in anger since Nagasaki, so that's in itself an amazing situation. But with smaller yield uh, tactical weapons in, what, five kiloton range thereabouts, there's a fear that that threshold could be crossed. What's your understanding of Putin's understanding of the nuclear threshold? Well, I mean, that's the $64,000 question. On paper, the way that Russians talk about their nuclear forces is very defensive. And so they really talk about using nuclear weapons to avoid a conventional defeat on Russian territory that threatens the existence of the Russian state. And so that's, that's good. That's a very limited um, doctrine or approach. The problem, of course, is that when someone like Putin is mired in a conflict, um, whatever the doctrine on paper is, he may feel compelled to try to find a way to go toward victory that involves nuclear weapons. And so, you know, I think we saw this very clearly in the Korean War, where the Eisenhower administration came into office and they were eager for negotiations to get an armistice, which is ultimately what they were able to achieve. But at the same time, they had concluded that if the conflict were to resume, they would have no choice but to use nuclear weapons against targets in in China. And so on the one hand, I think Putin in a cool, calm moment has a very restrained and accurate view of nuclear weapons. But I worry that this is not a calm, cool moment. And the longer this drags on, the more tempted he may be uh, to imagine some, some limited use um, that will secure him a victory that his troops are not able to to achieve on their own. Well, I understand that the U.S. under Eisenhower in the Korean War did deploy um, atomic demolition mines to stop a Chinese invasion. But if they had threatened to bomb, use nuclear weapons against China, that message presumably was conveyed to the Chinese. Well, it either was or it wasn't. It's a funny thing. In the case of the Eisenhower administration, they made the decision in April. Um, But then they sort of struggled with, how do you tell the Chinese? The Eisenhower administration claims that the Secretary of State at the time, John Foster Dulles, uh, conveyed that message to the Chinese through the Indian prime minister. Um, But the Indian prime minister later said he didn't hear the message and certainly didn't convey it. So it is a really interesting historical case study, which bears a lot on today, because, you know, I think for the parties to the conflict, it's very clear to them what they're thinking. But it turns out it is very hard for them to cross time and space and convey their thinking to their adversary um, when we're in such different conditions and when there is so much noise between them. And so there's, you know, always a real chance of misperception or misunderstanding. Well, there's a whole list of nuclear near misses, a lot of which are still classified, the most glaring example being the Able Archer exercise in, in uh, November of uh, 1983, where we almost had a nuclear war based upon the false perceptions of the aging geriatrics in the Kremlin who thought that a NATO exercise using NATO's doctrine of first use of nuclear weapons was a springboard for a real attack. So 
It doesn't sound like we've come a long way, Jeffrey. just in closing, in terms of the work that you do, disarmament. Uh, have we come a long way? It seems to me you could make the case we have the worst of both worlds. We still have massive nuclear arsenals on the US and Russian sides, and we may have some form of psychological disarmament, but we don't have physical disarmament. Yeah, I, I don't think we've come that far. I think you could take this world and you could show it to John F. Kennedy in, in 1962 or, or any other political leader from that era, and, and they would recognize it. You know, it would recognizably be their own world at the height of the Cold War. The numbers are a little different. The types of weapons are a little different. But the, the profound dilemma of the nuclear age hasn't changed. Um, and that's because we are still making fundamentally the same choices today we were then. Well, Jeffrey Lewis, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It was a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Jeffrey Lewis, who's a professor of international studies at the Middlebury Institute and a regular columnist for foreign policy. And he's published articles in Foreign Affairs, The Washington Post and The New York Times and is the founder of the Arms Control of armscontrolwonk.com, the leading blog and podcast on disarmament, arms control, and non-proliferation. We can take a brief station break and back looking into the passage of a $14 billion aid package in the House and later tonight in the Senate, $7 billion of which will go for arms, and we'll examine what weapons could keep the Ukrainians in the fight long enough for Putin to decide to cut his losses and negotiate a peace instead of dictating a surrender. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, James Golgaya, who's a professor in the School of International Service at American University, a visiting scholar at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University, and a visiting fellow at the Center on United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. He has held a number of public policy appointments, including Director of Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council, and the Whitney Shepherdson Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. And his books include America Between the Wars, from 11.9 to 9.11, Power and Purpose, U.S. Policy Towards Russia After the Cold War, and Not Whether, But When, the U.S. Decision to Enlarge NATO. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Golgai. Great to be here. Thanks, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, James. And uh, tomorrow uh, you'll be on a panel at a virtual event at the Council on Foreign Relations, the role of NATO enlargement revisited, which I obviously want to talk to you about. But let's begin with today. The House of Representatives passed a $14 billion aid package to Ukraine, half of which is humanitarian aid, but $7 billion is military aid. And that's a lot of money that's bigger than Ukraine's entire defense budget. What is that money going to be spent on? And will the arms that the Ukrainians need, short of a no-fly zone, Will they reach them in time? Well, I think the equipment will reach Ukraine in time to help Ukraine raise the cost to Russia, help them defend themselves. Whether it'll be enough is another question. But, you know, the United States has been providing military assistance to Ukraine 
for years now. Uh, and, you know, initially after the 2014 invasion, the aid was non-lethal military assistance. Uh, Donald Trump approved the sale of lethal military assistance and particularly uh, the Javelin anti-tank missiles. And uh, of course, then got caught up with tying that to asking President Zelensky for a favor that led to his first impeachment. But, uh, you know, this administration with bipartisan support is now ra ramping up the effort to provide a variety of different types of military assistance. And, um, you know, that includes uh, weaponry that Ukraine can use against tanks, against aircraft. Uh, but, you know, Ukraine needs all sorts of other types of equipment too, you know, night vision goggles and helmets and uh, ammunition. And, and these are things that the United States and its NATO partners are providing. Uh, but as you point out, there's a limit to what NATO and the United States are willing to do uh, because they, while they want to help Ukraine in defending itself, uh, the United States and NATO don't want to directly get into a war with Russia. And the Poles offered up a fleet of MiG-29 fighters, which the U.S. had to reject. And Vice President Harris is meeting today in Poland with Polish leaders, I guess, doing some kind of cleanup there. But that was never a particularly practical example. But my understanding, James, is that the missiles that are raining down on Kiev are coming from Belarus, and the Russians deployed most of their missiles around Chernobyl, knowing that they couldn't be retaliated against because of the nuclear power plant there. And those missiles are raining down on Kiev. So is there any way to get something like the Israeli Iron Dome system mm -hmm. in there? I mean, Israel's prime minister visited the Kremlin and had a chat with Putin, but I have not heard anything from any quarters about missile defense uh, that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, I have not heard that either. And I, I mean, I think the Israeli prime minister was there uh, in order to perhaps offer, offer up his services as a potential mediator uh, between Russia and Ukraine and may have had some other business as well. Russia and, and Israel have uh, had increasingly close ties in recent years. And I, I mean, yes, as you point out, I miss, missiles are raining down on these cities. We've seen these horrific scenes of, of uh, indiscriminate use of, of Russian military weaponry and, and bombing hospitals, for example. I, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just horrific. Uh, but the Russian military has done this previously in Chechnya, in Syria. Uh, so this isn't, it's, this isn't new, but um, these images are just horrific. And, and I mean, it's an interesting suggestion. And I, I don't know whether there's been any consideration of efforts to try to create some kind of a, of missile defense that I don't know how feasible or practical it would even be. And in terms of the operation, this was, this was part of the issue with the MiGs from Poland. I mean, these have been upgraded uh, and Ukrainian pilots are not trained to fly these upgraded fighter aircraft. So it's not like they could just jump in and and take off. And so, I mean, they need to have the training. So I, I think that is a lot of the issue with some of these ideas is just in terms of operating equipment, uh, you, you need to have the kind of training that would enable that. And already you have the equivalent of Aleppo in Europe with the Russian 
bombing and bombardment of Maripol, where there are apparently dead civilians littering the streets. It's just absolutely disgusting. And again, I'm speaking with James Golgai, a professor in the School of International Service at American University and a visiting scholar at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University and a visiting fellow at the Center on United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. He's held a number of public policy appointments, including Director of Russian, Ukrainian and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council and he's the Whitney Shepherdson Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. And his books include America Between the Wars, From 11-9 to 9-11, Power and Purpose, U.S. Policy Towards Russia After the Cold War, and Not Whether But When, the U.S. Decision to Enlarge NATO. Let's talk a little bit about tomorrow's virtual event, the role of NATO enlargement revisited. It seems to me, James, that Putin is not so much concerned about NATO enlargement. I mean, he's used it for propaganda purposes, but my understanding is real concern is the enlargement of the European Union. And that's what happened in 2014 with the Maidan Revolution of Dignity. It was the desire of the Ukrainian people to have the rule of law and democracy and be part of the European community, not the part of Putin's, uh, whatever he calls it, the deal. And that Putin simply does not want to have a democratic state right on his border that has a rule of law, that has a fraction of Russia's resources, but is thriving and its citizens are happy and secure. Isn't that his real nightmare? Yes, I, you've put it very well. Uh, I mean, as, a, as an authoritarian ruler who is, in fact, not just destroying Ukraine, but doing tremendous damage to his own country, uh, this is precisely what he didn't want to see. He did not want to see Ukraine thrive uh, and be a successful democracy. It's the largest of the former Soviet republics outside of Russia. Uh, and if it were successful, it would have put more pressure on him to be delivering at home uh, in a country that in fact is not is no longer a democracy, even though it was um, before he came to power and at the very beginning of his rule before he took this authoritarian turn. So uh, I, I think that, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about NATO and what NATO's done and NATO enlargement. I, I, I think people should be able to see that it's a good thing that most of Central and Eastern Europe is in NATO. I mean, just imagine if the whole region was insecure uh, because they weren't in NATO. And, you know, NATO was was not doing anything to Russia. Uh, I mean, Putin is a, is a brutal authoritarian ruler. Uh, he's used NATO as an excuse and to help uh, whip up uh, anti-Western sentiment at home. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's just so appalling uh, to see what he's unleashed on uh, people who did nothing to provoke this. Well, do you think that had the Baltic states not been members of NATO, that Putin might have moved against them? I mean, he does have this notion of uh, Ruskimir, Russia world, and there's lots of Russians in uh, uh, Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania, and he could have perhaps staged some incident to go to their rescue. Having seen what he's done in Moldova, where Russians are on part of the territory of Moldova, having seen what he's done in Georgia, where there are Russian troops on part of the territory of Georgia, and what he's done in Ukraine, I think there's just no denying that the Baltics would have been subject to uh, the same treatment. And I, I also don't believe the Baltics would have been admitted 
to the European Union if they had not come into NATO. I think NATO provided the security and stability so that the so that the EU knew that it could take the Baltics in because they were protected by NATO. So I, I think the Baltics would have been extraordinarily vulnerable and would have seen the same thing that these other former Soviet republics have gotten. So Putin is, is of course, doubling down. He's now increasing his attacks on civilians, which is just pure terror tactics to terrify the people and demoralize them into submission. It doesn't look like it's going to happen. The Ukrainians are incredibly brave and amazingly uh, defiant. And they're close to Kiev now, but they're still at least two weeks or maybe away from actually getting into the city and fighting, you know, street to street, house to house. So I think you could safely predict that at its current pace, this war could go on for about a month. What would you suggest, James? Well, I, I, I mean, it I mean it may go on even longer than that. I, I, we don't see any end in sight to this. And the, the question is, what would the Russians do if they captured all of this territory? Uh, what would they do if, if the Ukrainian government uh, was forced to leave or they were captured and uh, the Russians installed a government loyal to Moscow? Uh, I mean, that government would require all those Russian troops to stay to keep it in power because we've seen the Ukrainian government isn't interested in having a puppet regime installed in Kyiv. And uh, and that government would never be able to survive without the Russian troops. So, I mean, I think at this point, it's not just about um, trying to, you know, pound the Ukrainian population into submission, but it's also about even if he were, he were to succeed in doing that, I mean, there's still, you know, as long as there are Ukrainians who are alive in Ukraine, they're going to be fighting against this uh, unlawful occupation and effort, an effort to take their territory. And to add to that, it's so unlikely that a puppet government could rebuild the country and repair the massive destruction that the Russians have rained down on the country because the Russian economy is in freefall. That's the real Achilles heel for Putin is, isn't it? I mean, his, the ruble is tanking. The capital flight is, and Western companies are leaving in droves. The rainy day fund of $630 billion of foreign currency has been frozen. So he's got a real serious economic problems at home. So the notion that a, a Russian puppet government could govern, let alone repair the damage, is just beyond imagination. It is beyond imagination. And, and you know, when you think about him coming to power more than 20 years ago, promising to rebuild the Russian state, promising to bring Russia back as a great power, promising to overcome the turmoil and chaos of the of the 1990s and the and the tremendous Russian economic freefall after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And look where we are in 2022. I mean, he certainly has he has built up the state apparatus, the security apparatus. But look at everything else. The, the economy, as you say, is in a freefall. Russia is now an international pariah. Uh, I mean, it, he, he is destroying uh, everything um, that might have been possible in Russia, and it's going to take Russia a long time uh, to overcome this. And I, I don't see how they can unless there's a different leadership in place in the Kremlin. Well, since he's now making the cu country a police state, it's always been an incipient police state, but now whatever vestiges of freedom and free press, they're all being closed down. The, the young people and the middle class, those that can, are fleeing. 
they're trying to get out through Armenia and Georgia and Finland, but they have to sort of pretend they're on vacation. If you have any anything on your smartphone that indicates you might look at alternative media, <laughs> they won't let you go. So people are putting, you know, RT apps on their phone. I mean, this is what's happening to the country. It's losing its best and brightest. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, we think about 30 years ago and after the collapse of the Soviet Union and, you know, the tremendous economic contraction but at least at that time, there was hope about building a democracy. There was a lot of Western assistance coming in uh, to help the countries of the former Soviet Union emerge after communism. Uh, and now, you know, we just see this this economic freefall and this contraction and this at this move to basically isolate Russia once again from the world economy, just as it was, you know, in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, I mean, it's you know all the steps, all the all of the efforts that have been made to bring it more integrated into the global economy. And now you've all these Western businesses uh, are, are fleeing the country. And um, it's, it's just a really sad situation, what he's done. I mean, appalling what he's done to the Ukrainian population, uh, but it's also appalling what he's doing to his own citizens. Uh, he apparently doesn't care. So just in closing, I'm wondering now, given that we live in a world where one man can threaten the entire planet, and rattle a nuclear saber with these 5,000 nuclear weapons, which is completely unacceptable. But also what's unacceptable is that countries like China are completely in lockstep with him, and they're even going along with his false flag propaganda about American secret bioweapons and chemical weapons plants inside Ukraine. At some time or other, shouldn't we start isolating these dictators, and also, by the way, I'd include the Saudi leaders, MBS. They won't even take Biden's phone mm -hmm. calls. Mm -hmm. So isn't it time for the West not just to sanction Russia, but to sanction China and Saudi Arabia? Well, you know, it's just, I mean, I understand the impulse. It is very difficult. Um, you know, there is all this mutual dependence in the world, and, and we've, the United States has promoted free trade uh, ever since the Second World War. And you know, that has brought the United States great prosperity in the decades uh, since the Second World War. But there's no question that uh, what this has shown is just uh, the dangers that come with with being mutually dependent uh, on other countries uh, if they are uh, led by uh, anti-Western authoritarian rulers. And I think we've seen, you know, we've we've seen in recent years with respect to our thinking on China that we would want to create uh, sort of more, uh, less dependence on China, more self-sufficiency, uh, be able to manufacture more in the United States is more expensive. I mean, goods are going to cost more. One of the reasons why we've had this um, dependency on on Chinese manufactured goods is is just because the labor's cheaper, and um, you know we we produce other things, and that's created uh, some mutual dependencies. But we've seen with disruption to supply chains that. Uh, that we, you know, we re really have to rethink a lot of this. And of course, as you say, with respect to Saudi Arabia, they played this major role in the world because of their oil exports. And I think that really shows the more we, faster we can move to renewables, uh, the faster we are then no longer dependent in the in the world on on a country like Saudi Arabia that just uh, is sitting on top of all those reserves. Well, James Goldguy, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me, Ian. 
And again, I've been speaking with James Golgai, who's a professor in the School of International Service at American University, a visiting scholar at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University, and a visiting fellow at the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. He's held a number of public policy appointments, including Director for Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council, and is a Whitney Shepterson Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. His books include America Between the Wars, from 11.9 to 9.11, Power and Purpose, U.S. Policy Towards Russia After the Cold War, and Not Whether But When, the U.S. Decision to Enlarge NATO. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how the current conflict in Ukraine is a window into our increasingly endangered planet, threatened by nuclear weapons, cyber attacks, refugees, pandemics, and a fast-warming planet. Now he's helping for destruction He's afraid and confused And his brain has been mismanaged With great skill Now all he believes are his eyes And his eyes, they just tell him lies Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Karen Greenberg, Director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School and an International Studies Fellow at the New America Foundation and a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations. A noted expert on national security, terrorism, and civil liberties, she's the author of The Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First 100 Days, and Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. And the latest book is Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump. And she has an article to Tom Dispatch, To Truly Understand Ukraine War, Look to Our Future, Not the Past. Welcome to Background Briefing, Karen Greenberg. Oh, it's so nice to be here. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And of course, it's hideous what's happening in Ukraine and, and the high-level diplomatic peace talks in Turkey collapsed between Ukraine's foreign minister and Lavrov's Russia's foreign minister. Apparently, according to Peskov, Putin's spokesman, I think you get an idea of what the Russian position is. They're saying that if Ukraine demilitarizes and becomes a neutral country, the Russians will take and and uh, recognizes uh, Crimea and the breakaway provinces of Luhansk and Donetsk then Russians will stop killing Ukrainians and withdraw. And clearly, the Ukrainians reject that position, which I assume is the Russian negotiating position. So it's pretty despairing, is it not? This situation is clearly going to go on and inevitably get worse, surely. Yeah, it really does look uh, quite horrifying and tragic. This is not going to be one of those, you know, start and done in a in a brief amount of time. Um, I, I'm still hoping that, and I think many are, that, that there can be further negotiations. But um, this is what, you know, Russia has put on, on the table. Um, but, you know, this is a very delicate situation, largely because of the nuclear uh, potential of Russia and the fact that Vladimir Putin has mentioned nuclear uh, power it, during this conflict. And so everybody's sort of on, you know, tenderhooks about what could happen next. 
And look, Russia is also taking the approach that suddenly in the last 24 hours that Ukraine started this, right? So um, the narrative the narrative is different. The uh, vision for the future is different. Um, and the casualties are on both sides. This is this is harmful to Russia, not just in terms of it deflecting its military, but also the casualties as for Ukraine, which are just massive, not to mention the two million refugees that are only the beginning, we're told. But in your Tom Dispatch article, you make the case that, quote, the current conflict in Ukraine demands that we look to the present and the future on this increasingly endangered planet of ours. It's time to recognize that whether you're talking about nuclear weapons, cyber attacks, refugees, pandemics, or the fate of a fast-warming planet, that conflict stands in for the most pressing global and local realities of this century, not the previous ones. So this is all of the above, right? It's happening before our eyes. Yeah, I mean, I think what's very interesting about this is that all of these issues converge on the Ukraine conflict. And they do so in a very powerful way right before our eyes. The issue of oil, the dependence on fossil fuels um, is, is in the news from the very beginning of this and how the United States is going and, and NATO and the EU are going to rethink um, in the present moment where oil is going to come from, oil and gas, and in the future moment. This is a moment to change. This is a moment to recognize, if we didn't already learn it from COVID and the pandemic, that this is one globe. And that as many politicians and policymakers in the United States have been trying to say for years now, the local and the global are hard to you know, separate from one another and disentangle. And we're seeing this in Ukraine in a very profound way. And I think we're going to see that more and more. And so, you know, the mandate here is to not just make sure we settle Ukraine in a way and as soon as possible, but also that we say, yeah, look at these issues. They're front and center now. This is a wake up call. And let's not be slow about this. Let's take active measures. Um, not that some measures aren't going on in, in many parts of the climate change discussion, of pandemic, obviously, of the cyber uh, security environment, cyber warfare, cyber attacks, but it has to be faster and it has to be more. Um, so, so that was the gist of the article. And again, I'm speaking with Karen Greenberg, who's the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School and an International Studies Fellow at the New America Foundation and a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a noted expert on national security, terrorism, and civil liberties. She's the author of The Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First 100 Days, and Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. And her latest book is Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy, From the War on Terror to Donald Trump. And she has an article at Tom Dispatch, To Truly Understand Ukraine War, Look to Our Future, Not the Past. Well, obviously there are comparisons here to the U.S. invasion of Iraq and Putin's invasion of Ukraine in the sense that Putin apparently thought it was going to be a cakewalk, as did Bush and Cheney and and Rice and uh, Rumsfeld, etc. And it was initially for the U.S., but then a quick victory turned into a slow defeat. Whether or not that'll be the same fate of the Russians, uh, it's a question of how long the Ukrainians can hold out. But 
the comparisons, I guess, are in a way that Iraq was a kind of drive-by war. It was a spectator sport for the American people because they're not that engaged uh, because we have a volunteer army and George W. Bush and company deliberately tried to, you know, remember Bush said, go out and shop after 9-11. I mean, they tried to make it sort of, just tried to sanitize it. But a different thing is happening now as the American people and the rest of the world, except in Russia and China and other repressive states, are seeing on their television horrible human suffering. So it might have a different effect this time, Karen. What do you think, the idea that the American people are going to get increasingly frustrated as they see the slaughter of these helpless people in Ukraine and wonder why their own government can't do anything about it. Okay, so you brought up so many important things in that in that last comment. Um, first of all, I think, yes, there the, the idea of former presidents, starting with President Bush, that the war on terror in Iraq and elsewhere was over there. We were going to keep it over there. And um, and it was going to be separate from the American people. And, you know, I do start the piece with that reference to go shopping that that George Bush said. But, you know, they were very direct about it, not just President Bush, but uh, his successors. This war was going to be kept off of American shores. So that's one thing, not just in terms of the optics, but in terms of American interests. This could very much this war could very much impact here, whether it's in the fuel lines and fuel prices, whether it's in cyber attacks. Putin's made it very clear that Ukraine isn't the only thing in his sights, that there is a message and a and a, a large step forward aggressively towards the West and towards the United States, who he mentioned in, you know, that that long uh, speech he, he gave many, many times. So that's the first thing. Second thing in terms of how this will affect Americans watching because of the vivid pictures we have and the, the, the devastating um, you know, testimony of people from, on the ground in real time and what that will that will do. I do think that is going to have an impact, but I think this ties a little bit to the the American paying attention, Americans paying attention to Afghanistan and what happened. That you know, it wasn't so far in the past that it was watching people trying to get out of Afghanistan as the Americans withdrew, holding on to planes, right, risking their life and limb to just get out of what they thought, you know, expected would be this bloody um, response by the Taliban. And at the time, it was very striking that this American interest, you know, if you saw the amount of communities that came out in support of Afghans fleeing and the amount of communities that have taken them in, and I'm talking about here in the United States. And I think this is this is part of maybe of the United States taking greater responsibility in the world for what is happening, both in, in a direct way that is it, that Americans are responsible and what we could call in a in a more distance way. But absolutely, I think this is a pivot point and an important one. And it raises one of the issues that I brought up in the piece, which is, you know, both true, both to Afghanistan and to Ukraine, which is the issue of 
displaced persons, the issue of refugees. There are, I think at last count, 85 million displaced persons in the United States, I mean, in the world right now. The, the Ukraine crisis, the war stands to their estimating add another 5 million, and that may go up. This is a problem that the world needs to deal with and that the United States is showing some interest in taking an active part in. And so, um, you know, I think it's tied to that. I think the there are so many personal stories about knowing people in Afghanistan and in Ukraine. That's that's sort of an interesting part of this, that, that w- there's so many more ties that are personal, whether it's because of working with the government over there, working in international organizations over there, or just personal ties that have come through other business, school, et cetera. And that also, I think, is really fascinating about this. And that is fueling this very personalized outreach to displaced persons and refugees, of which Ukraine is now front and center. But in terms of the dangers posed by the weaponization of cyberspace with Russian trolls, bots, and disinformation experts, which we've experienced certainly in the 2016 elections, you can make the case that cyberspace has already been weaponized, but it could, of course, go a lot further. And I'm wondering whether there is a sort of mutually assured destruction factor here. We never really know what the U.S. is doing back to Russia to retaliate, but apparently the U.S. has probably more powerful tools than the Russians have. Could this get out of control, do you think? Yes, I'm really glad that you raised this. I think disinformation misinformation, malign activities. These are incredibly important. They are already weaponized. I'm, I am i don't think it's just about, you know, what is the United States doing in retaliation? I think the issue of Americans' uh, defensive systems and capacity for this is actually something we need to think about, think about how to counter it. Um, I'm glad you brought up the 2016 elections. In a way, we've never really addressed what happened there in terms of foreign malign influences. Um, and in addressing it, we also haven't, Putin and Russia got away with it. And I think that it letting him get away with things in the past, whether it was incursions into other countries or the kind of cyber spreading cyber misinformation um, is something that we we can't let go on um, in the future. And so I think as a government, as a country, in both in terms of the public private uh, partnership, but also in terms of tasking officials and maybe even creating new departments and agencies. This is something we have to think about um, in in ways we haven't in the past. And and like I said before, for so many of these things, aggressively and quickly. Well, I think one of the reasons why the 2016 Russian interference in the elections never really been fully investigated, even though there was a Mueller report, but there's been this counter-narrative that uh, Trump and Fox and, and Trump's enablers and particularly William Barr and company have made, and with this guy John Durham in the in the Justice Department, they have, and in spite of the fact that the bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee investigation made it really clear that there were deep and massive ties between the Trump campaign and the Trump family and, the, and Putin and company. It's never really been understood, and he's fought back against this narrative. So, you know, at the end of the day, it would be really helpful if we really had the full accounting of what it is that Putin holds over over Trump. But now you've got Gerhard Schroeder, the former German chancellor. He's 
now going to Moscow to, to talk to Putin. And, and he, of course, is highly compromised, just, just as Trump is. His own staff quit en masse because he refused to uh, condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So is it possible? We know that Schroeder is, all, is meeting with Putin. But is it possible that Trump could start meddling in this and thinking maybe my buddy Vladimir and I can sort this out and make Biden look like the weakling that we say he is? It's possible. It would be a very dangerous road to go down. Um, and I think, you know, he he's he probably realized that at some level, but you never know. Um, and it's not just what they have over one another or what Putin has over Trump and others. It's also, you know, the the stakes of what they think they can gain from uh, collaboration. I, I'm so glad that you mentioned the Senate Intelligence Committee report on this, because that, in essence, was a deep dive, which Mueller wasn't into, um, you know, sort of the the counterintelligence aspects of this. And I think that's um, something that I, I agree with you. I wish that that had resonated more deeply with the media and with the American public at large. And it sort of got lost somehow, whereas uh, the talking points of Trump and his followers are out there um, in a way kind of uncontested. Um, so I, I do think that's another piece of this that we have to address. And then I guess the final thing that comes out of your comment is that, you know, we've always we've been referring to new kinds of war in the 21st century, often as hybrid war. I think we really need to just understand that war itself has changed and wars going forward are going to very much involve, um, if they can, this kind of misinformation, disinformation strategy. And and again, we're behind the eight ball on this. We need to ratchet it up. Um, and the stakes are, are, are very high. So just in closing, then, let's just briefly touch on economic warfare, which appears to be a more powerful tool in many ways than kinetic warfare. And you go back to the Vietnam War where we tried to break the will of a third world country with massive military power and lost. And then shortly thereafter, the communist government in Vietnam were begging for financial help. So it seems to me that in many ways that's a more powerful tool and apparently even, even Putin or the Russians are acknowledging that these sanctions against them are really going to hurt. So how do you see economic warfare? I mean, if you combine economic warfare with the more positive side of what they call soft power, where our kind of cultural and political influence and democratic values and rule of law, can we weaponize the rule of law and our democratic values? Because that's really what the Ukrainian people are fighting for. They're fighting for democracy, while here at home, democracy is slipping through our fingers. Yes, we can, but we also have to be very careful about that. And and so two things. One, I'm really glad you brought up that we need to pay attention here as well as abroad to the the fragility of American democracy. And maybe this is a moment where American democracy and global democracy is getting some kind of renew, renewed energy. Um, but we'll see. And I know some pundits have said that. But I think also in terms of economic warfare, at the beginning of your question, it is extremely powerful. Um, 
look, there are there are interests that that stand to gain a lot from the redirection of energy uh, resources, oil and gas, um, in the wake of of the Nord Stream uh, two pipeline not being continued, and we'll see what happens with with Nord Stream one. But you have to be careful because. You know, if you bet in this particular instance, not war in general, but backing Putin into a corner is also very dangerous. Right. There has to be a way if you're a diplomat, if it's your combination of soft and hard power that you're referring to, you, you don't want to back him into a corner where he has no options um, so that he you know, does something destructive in ways we don't want to think about. And so this is a very, very delicate use of um of sanctions and of economic power. And I just want to emphasize on the other side of this, you know, what can come out of this is learning how to make more money in terms of using, finding new sources um, and transport ways for fossil fuels. But the other side of this is going forward. How about we start thinking about clean energy in even more rapid ways than we have in the past and more intensive ways than we have in the past. So I think it could work, but I think ultimately it holds some potential pitfalls, both in this circumstance and in the larger question about energy, which I tie financial to because of the sanctions and how they're falling. Well, Karen Greenberg, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Anne. And again, I've been speaking with Karen Greenberg, who's the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School and an International Studies Fellow at the New America Foundation and a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a noted expert on national security, terrorism, and civil liberties. She's the author of The Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First 100 Days, and Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. And her latest book is Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump. And she has an article at Tom Dispatch, To Truly Understand Ukraine War, Look to Our Future, Not the Past. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.
One more light goes on 